you're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome back to the Common Descent Podcast, starting off 2018. 2018, we have returned, as promised. First episode of the year. Yes, how has your year been? I hope it was good for everybody. <laughs> ours, ours was great, as as you've all been listening to. Oh yes, the whole all all the whole week. It's been a good. It's been a good year. <laughs> it's it's been a fantastic. It's so far. I think it's things are looking up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Things are looking continues. good. Hey, my my favorite podcast is back. Yes. So that's something. And we can only go up from here. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome back, everyone. We are back with our first episode and a very unique episode topic. I don't want to say our weirdest because we do a lot of weird stuff, but this is definitely one of our to use a bad pun, this is definitely one of the most out there. Um, I was I was going to say the same. I was going to make that joke. Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for you to finish talking. <laughs> Today, we are talking about astrobiology. Life among the stars. Yeah, and this is a, this was a suggested topic by one of our listeners uh, across Podbean, in fact. Uh, mm-hmm. A listener named Mellow Dinosaur. Thank you, good dinosaur friend. Thank you very much. Seems like a, a cool dinosaur to hang out with. <laughs> He's pretty chill. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So we will be talking about the... Like I said, this is a a peculiar subject, but it it connects back to a lot of common themes that we've talked about before. Indeed, and we will talk about that coming up soon. We should also mention that this being not only the first podcast episode of the new month, but also of the new year, Mm -hmm. that... All of this lovely podcasting is brought to you, our listeners, by, quite literally, listeners like you. Yes. Specifically, a handful of you that (laughs) are our patrons on Patreon. You all know who you are. Yes, you do, and we know who you are, and we're very (laughs) grateful. Uh, You're sounded more ominous. (laughs) We know who you are, and we we know where you live. We know where one of you lives. (laughs) You had to mail something, so... You did. We had to mail You know something. the address you gave us. <laughs> this is getting weird. <laughs> sure is. But, as always, our patron donations, ha- at this point, have built up quite a bit. And, and we are actually getting some substantial use out of them. Specifically, the ability to maintain podcast hosting without having to pay out of our own pocket. The podcast is being paid for by patrons, and we are building up a nice collection that will eventually, hopefully, allow us to upgrade and, and do new exciting things. And if you join us as a patron, there's all sorts of cool extra stuff that you get mm-hmm. to, to listen to, that you get access to. You get to hear our additional ramblings and stuff like that. So if you are so inclined, please consider joining us on Patreon. We hope to see you there, guys. Thanks again. Yes, yes. As usual, 2018 is not as different from 2017 as you might have thought. We still must do the news first. The news. And now, the first, some of the earliest news of 2018. Ooh. Actually, I think, because of the way we plan these podcasts, most of our news is 
actually from 2017? Yeah, both of mine are. But, and I, I think mine are too. But anyway, so <laughs> this this news is a year old. <laughs> <laughs> this is news from last year. We're all outdated. <laughs> We're going to make that same dad joke throughout the entire episode. <laughs> My first bit of news that I have brought to the table today, just to bring things home a little bit, is about humans. Humans. Not just any humans, but American humans. Hey, that's us. A new discovery from up in Alaska has revealed a previously unknown population of Native Americans. Very cool. Yeah, so this is, there is a camp, an ancient abandoned campsite, uh, old, you know, campsite that, that belonged to these ancient peoples, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a place called the Tanana River Valley in central Alaska. In There's uh, remains of tents, there is a hearth that was used for cooking, and there are the remains of three children oh. at this site. This is about 11.5 thousand years old. The three remains, there are, there, one of them is the cremated remains of a child. Oh, wow. And two of them were buried together in a pit. One is a stillborn baby, and oh. the other is an infant that was about six weeks old at the time of death. These were discovered in 2013, at least the, the six-week-old and the, the baby in the pit were discovered in 2013, mm-hmm. and the reason that they are in the news now is because new research by J. Victor Moreno-Mayar et al. in Nature has sequenced DNA from the six-week-old child's remains, and that DNA, much to their surprise, was not similar, not very similar, to other Native Americans, to modern Native Americans, which is what they expected. It was about halfway, roughly half a match for Siberian populations, ancient Siberian humans, and about half a match for modern-day Native American populations, which is a composition of DNA that has not been found before. Yeah. Which suggests that this is a unique population that was living in Alaska that we've never seen before. That's really cool. And this has all sorts of interesting, you know, who were these people? Where did they come from? What mm-hmm. does this tell us about the migration of, of the first humans over into the Americas? They, 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 they ran some sequencing. Uh, they ran some genetic analysis and made some estimates that this group split from the rest of North American humans around 20,000 years ago. But it doesn't tell us, right, did they move into Alaska and then the rest of them moved away and this population stayed behind? Did they split in Asia and then this population moved over separately from the ancestors of the rest of Native Americans in North America and then and then beyond? It raised, like as usual, a new discovery has risen, has raised, raised all sorts <laughs> of interesting new questions for us to pursue. That's really cool. Yeah, it's it's, it's we're constantly finding new tantalizing clues at the history of human movement around the world. Yeah, it's super cool to find a not new species but a new population. Yeah, just like you would with any other animal. Yeah, it's like um in the, I think recently 
there was news about a new population of orangutans. Yeah. That we'd never seen. We didn't know they were living there. It's not a new orangutan. It's just a new group of orangutans we yeah. hadn't seen before. Which is which is a cool thing that we can. But it's also cool that we can do it in that much of a detail. Like, yeah. That's really neat that we're like, well, these aren't quite Siberian people or quite North American people. Like, it's that's a lot of detail. Mm-hmm. Which is very cool. And it's also, you know, I think this is an obvious part that's interesting to studying any part of ancient human history is that it, all, of course, feels more personal, but because you can actually now start to sympathize and empathize, and it's not anthropomorphizing them because they are people. <laughs> yeah. like, so they're it's, already, it's got that, they're, they, they're pre-anthropomorphized. Yes, yes, they, they it's pre-done. <laughs> We already had one ready for you. Um, this is... It's neat, because it's... There's also the... Not only is there the implication behind, as a people, what was going on, but also what was going on in this place. Yeah. And it can be much more specific, because we can directly observe patterns in human behavior. And that's really cool. It is. I should also mention that the infant that they sequenced has been given a name... Mm-hmm. A nickname, as specimens so often are. Now, I often pride myself mm-hmm. in pronouncing and and attempting and and perhaps succeeding somewhat at difficult to pronounce and especially foreign words. Mm-hmm. This child's nickname has twenty three letters and three apostrophes, <laughs> and it translates to Sunrise Girl, and I'm going to leave it at that. There you go. <laughs> if any of you out there speak whatever language that is, please let us know. <laughs> say say it beautifully it and then send it over to us. <laughs> we'll tack it on. We we will dub over. <laughs> yeah, we'll stick it right in here. We'll stick it in. We'll, we'll re- release a special version of this episode. Yeah, with episode your... 26 remastered. <laughs> pronunciation (laughs) (laughs) we'll also cgi in more spaceships yeah yeah more creatures uh around the cantina Mm -hmm. the the ghost version of us will be younger (laughs) 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 commonsent remastered (laughs) anywho on the note of uh fairly recent paleontology finds there was a this was in the news a few years back that people who follow along with paleo news might have noticed there was a baby woolly rhino yeah discovered that was a fairly complete mostly just the skin you know because the the hide was tougher and mm-hmm. that often lasts long yes why we use leather but it was a almost complete baby woolly rhino found in Siberia yeah frozen a frozen, frozen fur and skin and face and all. Absolutely. And so this was frozen in what was a riverbed. Mm-hmm. In what would have been the muddy bank or or bed of that area. Really well preserved. Made a big splash. I believe that initial publishing was in 2000... Or the news for it was in 2015. Mm-hmm. Since then, there's been a bit of an update because they taxidermied it. Yeah. To actually show what the baby would have looked like actually standing and they cleaned it and they found some really interesting things and there's also been some updates from the initial uh findings when it was first excavated so this baby rhino named sasha 
We have to give nicknames to all the cool. Oh, they, they have to. If it's going to be famous, it's got to have a catchy <laughs> name. Now, this one's named after the person who discovered it. It was a, a hunter and businessman who came across it. That's cool. And it was named Sasha. Now, they don't know whether it's male or female, but luckily in Russian, Sasha is a gender-neutral name. So, How convenient. Yeah, it works. <laughs> now, this is a, a quick aside, because they call it baby rhino, but in, a couple of times they call it a rhino calf, which... As we've had it, I, I don't have any strong feelings, but would, would it not be Rhino Foal? Just aside, a, a debate for yeah. the philosophers. You guys we, can... we brought this up in the, in the, with the saber-tooth cat yes, thing. Yes, we did. The kittens versus cubs. Yep. <laughs> uh, so you guys can debate. You guys let us know which one you think it is. Yes, please do. But it was discovered in 2014, frozen. Initially, when they found it, it was a very uh, dark you know, or light gray in the fur Mm -hmm. and they thought it was probably about a three or four year old and they didn't really know the dating initially like they had kind of had a general date for about at the same time that woolly rhinos went extinct which is they know that it had to be at least that old right right now they've updated it's about 34,000 years old cool so pushed it back yeah and they found some interesting things upon a closer look and cleaning. The hair, this is the most fun one of the things they found just because it's neat. The hair changed color once they cleaned it. They found that the, oh, that's cool. the light gray was not the actual color. And the light gray wasn't surprising because modern white rhinos have a very like mid to dark gray hair. So mm-hmm. gray makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Turns out, as they describe it, it's more of a strawberry blonde. Interesting. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I love discovering that when prehistoric animals were more colorful than we thought they yes, were. Yes, exactly. Like, it's easy to... Being a colorblind person, I completely sympathize with using neutral colors. <laughs> because it's safe. Like, you know, a lot of things are brown and black and gray, so you just go with that. But yeah. it's neat when you find out that it's like, no, it was actually kind of colorful, and this one was, was a very unique color. That's cool. The size was also interesting so it's not huge it's just a few feet tall uh, and i think it's about four or five feet long in mm-hmm. total so it's not huge big dog yeah. but initially they thought it was about a, f- a few years old looking at the teeth they're seeing that it's probably only a few months old uh seven months i think is what they oh interesting this is still you know the, the these things have not all been published on so it's still just announcements for their initial these are all just initial findings for their initial look at the new taxidermied uh, state of the rhino. The reason it's interesting is because the size of this baby is equivalent to what a modern rhino would be at 18 months. Mm, so these are fast-growing rhinos. Big rhinos. This is showing that woolly rhinos probably got much heftier than our rhinos today and did it fast. So Interesting. That's cool. And then the, the fur also revealed another thing, which is one... This is confirmation that they were covered in fur because we had cave drawings True. of them yeah. being covered in fur. But this is not, we found the fur. And it's definitely adapted for cold weather. It's dual layered, which is very common among many cold weather animals. Keeps a layer of air and the outside air separate against the skin. And it showed that some fur had molted before death. So they had evidently had a shedding or molting. Very cool. This this is an unveiling mm-hmm. of this creature in the same way. So this is uh, the woolly rhino here 
baby woolly rhino comes out of Yakusha, yes, which yes. is the same region in Siberia that the frozen baby cave lions came out mm-hmm. of, and that Liuba, the famous frozen baby mammoth, I'm pretty sure came from the same region as well. And whenever they find these, they do an there, there's always this is a the, the report we're looking at is in the Siberian Times. Yes, and they always do a here's a ton of pictures, and we'll link it on the blog post so you can check them out. Unveil right? They they brought a bunch of people around this big sort of press unveiling of the the specimen with the new stuff they learned. Yeah, uh, so it's 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 cool stuff. They also were able to look at the environment a little bit, show that it's different than it is today. The area where Sasha was found is tundra now, which it would not have been back then. It was a colder and drier environment, but they actually had much more grass. And they're saying that the animals that, even though it's, we think like cold and cold then, cold now, Mm -hmm. the animals that lived there would not be able to survive on what the tundra has now. So... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about that last episode, mm-hmm. how the environments shifted at the end of the Pleistocene, and you don't have those, especially the grassland environments anymore. Mm-hmm. And they, they uh, that was one of the ways the people looking at these findings described it, is that back then you would lack whole zones of environment, you know, no tundra zones at all. And yeah. so it was, it was a significantly different area that this little rhino was scampering around in. Fascinating. I also yeah. think that they inferred that this rhino died the same way that Luba, the baby mammoth, did. Yeah, that they it, think it that looks it like it drowned. Yeah, or fell in into mud. mud or something. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And so that this the the riverbank it was frozen. It was probably what killed it as well. Fascinating stuff, which is interesting. Yeah. So there you go, little cute pink fuzzy baby mammoth or baby <laughs> rhino. <laughs> Maybe right now. Well, yeah, and we'll put check out the link in the blog post for just fantastic pictures of yeah, it. Yeah, the pictures are really interesting. My next news piece does not have fantastic pictures associated with it. It's a little more technical, woo, but it's about dinosaurs, woo. So I have your attention. <laughs> in a previous episode, we had a question from one of our patrons who asked about air sacs. Mm-hmm. in dinosaur bones. And we talked back then about how dinosaurs, including modern-day birds, have this air sac system where there are spaces within their bones and they have these extensions of the lung that expand and contract as they breathe, and it it is part of this very efficient respiratory mm-hmm. system that birds have. And we've also found it in sauropod and theropod dinosaurs, we found spaces that have been associated, have been suggested to contain air sacs, because they look a lot like modern-day bird bones that have that yeah. structure that are called pneumatized. They have space in the, in the bone, and the bone is a bit rearranged to leave that hollow space. But air sacs are air sacs. They don't fossilize. They're soft tissue. Yeah. So it's really difficult to get a definite sense of whether or not there were air sacs in there. Mm-hmm. However, a new study by Marcus Lambert et al. in Biology Letters has discovered, or at least drawn the attention to, a type of bone tissue that has not been recorded before that is exclusively found in in birds today on bone that is in contact with air sacs. Oh. So you see this tissue that is is full of these fine and densely packed fibers 
that they have called a brand new name, pneumostium, for this type of bone tissue, this bone structure oh, that cool seems to form in pneumatized bones that are in contact with air sacs. And this is interesting because if they're correct, this could be a way for us to confirm which bones in dino other dinosaurs, extinct dinosaurs, had air sacs in them. Mm-hmm. And they mentioned in the press release that this type of tissue, they noticed it in bone of sauropod dinosaur bone alongside a cavity that other people have previously suggested might have had an air sac in it. Yeah. So this might be the little marker in bone that says, hey, there was an air sac here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which opens up all sorts of really great possibilities for us to learn about dinosaur respiration, about mm-hmm. breathing patterns, and the evolution of that marvelous avian respiratory system. That hyper-efficient breathing. Yeah. That's very cool. It's, it's and we'll actually be able to touch on this kind of idea later on. Whenever you find a a new indicator is a very potent tool for new discovery because what it means is like all the fossils you've already found already named already examined you have a new tool to go over with them with that could lead to completely new discoveries yep now someone's got to go back through the museum collections and look for this kind of bone it's like we, we were talking about video games before it's like when you get a new tool in a video game and now you have to replay levels because you can now unlock parts that you couldn't before Yeah, this is how I know that Will and I hang out too much, because (laughs) I was going to make the exact same comparison. That that is exactly what this this is like. All right, I have surf now. I need to go back to to the earlier roots, because there's stuff there. Now, this is how I get to that place. Okay. Yelp, yelp. That's that's great. So, final news piece. And this one I picked very much on purpose, because I actually found it in Astrobiology Magazine. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so this, topical. This is going to lead right in. Now, this is uh, originally a, a news piece from Harvard, but it is about a discovery of a similar mechanic in the way cells divide and organize themselves that has been found to be uniform among all three major cell types of life. Interesting. Which is really, really cool, and we'll explain why in just a moment. So... This research, uh, published in Nature, and uh, published by, let's see, Yi Jinun et al. Initially, this in nature, is basic, nature microbiology, specifically. Nature microbiology, yes, it is. This study was kind of a, a step up from an initial finding when Ariel Amir, who works at Harvard and was looking at E. coli, a bacteria, and budding yeast, which is a eukaryote, same group of life as us and all other animals Mm -hmm. was looking at how, and this is something I didn't even know was a thing to look at for cells, but how they regulate size to make sure that each new cell is the same size as the cells around it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. One of those things that you don't even think about is, oh, cells are different size. Yes, but how did they get that way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's cool. That, because they have to be the same size. Otherwise, yeah, I would assume. Yeah. It's, it would, it's going to affect them, you know, in huge ways. So he was looking at the mechanism and he found that they shared the same, you know, a, a mechanism, the same format to regulate their size. 
Interesting. Despite being that bacteria and eukarya, yes, right, two very distinct cell types, two of the domains. Exactly. Of so these life. are fundamental separations of life that share a very unique feature. So the research was continued, and it was looked at uh, archaea, which is the third of the domains of life, which are the typically classified as just the extremo, the extremophile microbes. Yeah, yeah Now yeah. we know that they can be found in more places than that, but these are separate from bacteria, separate from eukaryotes, similar. They were, they were very similar to bacteria, similar size. Uh, mm-hmm. They both lack a nucleus. They both lack uh, membrane bound organelles, which is what lets right, our cells right, do right. all the fancy things they do. But it, was found. It used to be. I'm, I remember even back in my early science classes, the archaea bacteria. Now, yeah, it's, they were grouped together. Mm-hmm. Now it's separate. So these are three separate groupings of life, and they were looking at now. Archaea have been hard to study beforehand because they're typically hard to uh, culture in a lab due to the conditions they live in. Mm-hmm. But they were able to, and it was a particular one called a Halobacterium salarum. Interesting. And so, or salinarum, salinarum, there we go. They were able to culture it and look at it, and this is a extremophile that lives in high salt environments, so those very salty pond, you know, uh, lakes and ponds and pools that yeah, are yeah. uninhabitable for most things. Hypersaline. Hi- hypersaline. We'll get more into that as well later in the episode, because these are important <laughs> critters. It uses the same method of controlling cell size as both the other two. And basically what they kind of do is they control the amount of cytoplasm, of the amount of fluid going in and stop it at the right point while they're multiplying. And they all use a similar method, which is leads to a couple of big questions on how did this come up between these three? How did this very similar technique come up if it's independent, how did it come mm-hmm. up among these three different groupings of life? So you've got the major three categories of life differentiated by what they're, the fundamental, right? That's the structure of the mm-hmm. cell are using the same basic method to control their growth, to regulate this mm-hmm. this particular feature of their growth. We've talked about convergent evolution before, how you'll have the same feature that shows up, right? Saber teeth have shown up yeah. multiple times, and the body form of snakes and dolphins and things like that. This is convergence at at, at a very, very fundamental level that you've the got cellular. each of these three domains of life have stumbled upon the same mechanism Mm-hmm. for controlling their cellular growth if that's convergent yeah that's it's interesting because it makes it it, it makes one wonder what is special about this yes. method is is this just is this the only way to do it is this just by far the Superior. easiest way to do it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they didn't mention that the archaea microbes were not quite as efficient or precise as the bacteria, a little more variability, but all three do it in the same phases of cell division of yeah, the cell yeah. cycle. And it's, it's a big deal. And we'll, I'll actually touch back on this news article as we keep going in the episode, because this 
keys into one of the big parts of astrobiology and finding trends in life. Yeah, and what makes what makes certain groups of life distinct, and then what makes life itself what is commonplace in yeah 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 what life. is consistent and what is unique and, it, and it, that that those m- most fundamental questions of living organisms. Absolutely, and with that, and very quickly transitioning, we will wrap up the news section That's and barrel right into the episode because that is directly connecting into the subject of today, astrobiology. So astrobiology comes from the word biology, right? Mm-hmm. The study of life. And yes. astro, which means the stars. Yes. B- but Will, <laughs> there's no life on stars. Well, David, that's what <laughs> we're going to talk about today. So astrobiology might be, I don't know for sure whether this is foreign to most of you or how many of you, but mm-hmm. I know that I didn't hear of this term until I was well into college. Same here. I got to meet an astrobiologist. Same here. (laughs) Yep, there you go. So this is a very specific field of study, but it has a very wide base for what it pulls from and what it is used and applies to and how it's gone about to be studied. So it is is a very wide topic. We're going to very literally just scrape the surface on this one because yeah. this is a pool that especially I personally could dive deep deep into. I, this is a fun oh, yes. one. <laughs> but astrobiology at its simplest definition is the search for and study of life on other planets. Specifically in the, the statement that is put out for astrobiology of many is the study of the origins, evolution, and distribution and, uh, distribution and future of life in the universe. That's a good overall mm-hmm. depiction of it. I like that it's it, for me I always think that you know it's the it's the study of life among the stars keeping in mind that so are we. Yes, we are also among them stars. And that astrobiology is is a is a, is a, is a turning in that microscope mm-hmm. to our own planet as much as as looking elsewhere. And that's that's the really important thing. So this is a concept of with the ultimate aim of discovering life outside of earth mhm this is not an attempt to contact aliens which might be a you know a confusion <laughs> this is not we're not trying necessarily not avoiding finding intelligent life but it is not the attempt to contact intelligent races yeah this yeah. is just searching for evidence and eventual proof that life exists outside of our biosphere. Yeah, or even just that that searching for the answer to the questions of could life exist elsewhere and what would it take for life to exist elsewhere? And Absolutely. So if we're looking for life, what are we looking for and all that, you know, that like all that stuff. I uh, keep going. It, it it's because <laughs> this is such a big question, it has a million sub-questions within it. All the ones you listed, the infinite mm-hmm. more that many scientists specialize on. Because of that, it's a very almost innately interdisciplinary field. Biologists, of course, you have to have astronomers who are looking, who know about space and the bodies there and the mechanics. Geologists, Mm -hmm. planetary specialists who know the difference between the, you know, 
our planet and Saturn and how they differ. Chemists, people who can research uh, the effects of different forms of uh, uh, environment, radiation, on the mm-hmm. effects of both the planet and Earth. I mean, it's the list goes on and on for the different ways it can be utilized. The applications also include things like robotics, yeah. space travel, of course, yep. lab tests on microbes, studying of modern life, of fossil life. It's basically anything that deals with space and life can affect this field and be used within this field and has been. So there's a million ways that you can come at this question. Yeah, I was looking on, I think it was astrobiology.com, and they have a, a bunch of a news section with the different news that they're tracking. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to me because the news included things like, you know, study of early life on yeah. Earth and studies of exoplanets. But it also, there was a lot of extinction studies. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of, you know, how does the eclipse affect living things and how, yeah. how does a supernova affect life on Earth? And th- those sort of, you know, the relationship between planets and the stars and the life on those planets around those stars. Yeah. And so it's it's a very complex system of questions. The reason we're asking this question you know, or these, you know, encyclopedia of questions is that this, this is one of those sciences that gets to the heart of some of the core fundamental questions that humans have been asking since we've been asking questions. (laughs) Where did we come from? Where are we going? Are we alone? Mm -hmm. Though, I mean, those are, these are the cruxes of just about... I'd say 90% of all sci-fi films. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, this is Star Trek type thing. Deal with one or all of those questions. Yeah. <laughs> like, so we've been pondering these things before this field ever existed, before this study was ever a thing. And nowadays it is a actual scientific profession and field. Mm-hmm. Of course, here, headed by NASA. Yeah, here in the old U.S. Yeah, so NASA does have an astrobiology program. Mm-hmm. It has three basic questions that it focuses on. How does life begin and evolve? Does life exist elsewhere in the universe? And what is the future of life on Earth and beyond? So those cool are the three questions. main... Those are, yeah, those are NASA-type questions. It's, these are really <laughs> cool, and they are... As, as is to be expected, very systematic in the way they handle this. Mm-hmm. They have strategies that they update throughout the years as to what they're going to focus on in their search for life and in their investigation into life's history, present and future. And they do it through different uh, elements or different, not necessarily departments, but different branches of that astrobiology program. Mm-hmm. The main one, and the one that you would find most often that's almost synonymous with the program itself is the NASA Astrobiology Institute or NAI. Right. And so they focusing on the main three questions, they are the main astrobiology unit that you'll like I said, when you look up astrobiology, they will come up. But there are also other departments that function into it. And this is where you start to really see the crazy amount of <laughs> variety of fields. It's 
it's like when I work at the aquarium and people ask me, why are you, why is a paleontologist working at the aquarium? Like, oh, look, it's all these animals have fossil cousins. <laughs> it's because all these animals came from somewhere. Yeah. So it's the kind of idea where it's, I, if you know your field well enough, you can apply it to a crazy amount of things. Yeah. This is one of those fields that is so vast, almost every field can be applied to it. Mm-hmm. They have the exobiology and evolutionary biology program, which is to, the goal is to understand the origin, evolution, distribution, and future of life in the universe. So these are specializing on those initial questions in yeah. a big way. Now there's a new term in there, and I won't be lots of little terminologies in here, but exobiology is an interesting one because this is the search for life beyond Earth and the effects of extraterrestrial environments on living things. So interesting. Specifically, the search for life. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there life on Mars? What would it be like? What yes. would it take to live on Mars? Stuff like that. Now, this used to be the original term for astrobiology. This was what the term that was originally used for this general field, and then things got updated to today. Where yeah, now it's a part of the, the broad mm-hmm. field of astrobiology. But this is looking, th- this branch is looking at all the things of a early evolution and origin of life, potential for life to adapt to different environments, and the implications those lead to for life el- elsewhere. Mm-hmm. You have the planetary science and technology through analog research, or PSTAR. Nice. It's, this is NASA we're talking about, people. So all of these are long titles. With <laughs> what, is, what is that? What does that name mean to you? It says it says to me that somebody really wanted those letters to to mean to, to spell shield. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the next one's even better. So this one is addressing the need for integrated interdisciplinary field experiments. Now I'm I'm quoting a lot of the websites because mm-hmm. it's very wordy. It's NASA stuff, but this is basically the one that is looking at how to integrate other fields into this one to get new looks and new views as a way to further this uh, field. And it's a big part in future human and robot missions. So these are the people whose job it is to... That's such an interesting... That that this is a field that exists as an amalgamation of other fields. Mm -hmm. That perhaps it did not exist previously because all the other fields of science had to get to a place where they could mm-hmm. then pull together to create this new field that is the sum of many parts. It's really interesting. And the, the next two really lean toward that. So Picasso, or the Planetary Instrument Concepts for the Advancement of Solar System Observations. Nice. I love these titles. <laughs> <laughs> this one, and this one's in partnership with uh, Maddie. SSE, which mm-hmm. is the maturation of instruments for solar system exploration. Basically, Picasso develops the ideas for new equipment and systems and tools to be used on future missions, and Matty SSE takes those the next step toward making a, a functioning, right, right. You know, a, a, a prototype or usable product. And so these are focusing on developing this is this is the uh shield or 007 or this is the the q lab this is q branch <laughs> this is q branch where they are they, they are developing nice. new stuff and it's the two sides oh that's great try not to crash it into saturn 007 yes yes <laughs> <laughs> and then finally we have the habitable worlds program 
which is Ooh. using the knowledge of Earth's history and our life here to determine the processes and conditions that create habitable worlds. Interesting. How do you make an Earth, basically? Right, right, right. And that's all of these things branch out into millions of tiny topics, but that's just an overview of how NASA has structured itself for examining this subject. There was a web page that I came across, and I think it might have been on NAI, and we should link it on the, oh, the blog post because it was great. There's going to be so many links, people. I, I came across so much <laughs> that is really cool, and I had to pull out sentences from different links. Yep. <laughs> it's a, there's a lot out there. One of the pages I was reading was a history of the yep. field of astrobiology. Yep. And one of the things that I took from that was that it sounded very much like they started asking these questions of, you know, oh, is there life out there? And then NASA and other agencies started trying to answer them only to discover that there is so much we need to know mm -hmm. in order to find, like, what evidence are we looking for? What would it look like? What, like, they said, can we answer this question? And then they got a billion other questions, and mm -hmm. thus astrobiology was born. Yes. <laughs> the road to answering that original question. It, it It's one of those where what they started on a path entered a labyrinth, and, yep. like, it's <laughs> crazy. Uh, me and a, a co-worker were talking about the concept of playing devil's advocate and that, you know, using hypotheticals and arguments. And I was saying the point of, you know, at some you know, hypotheticals are fun or devil's advocate is useful a lot of times, but, you know, at some point you have to draw a conclusion to the yes, but what if mm -hmm. questions. Because eventually you you break down to a yes, but what if there is no spoon? And yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're now, <laughs> none of your conversation is applicable to reality because you've gotten so far into the hypothetical this field does that by its nature to where the questions you have to end up you end up to by following this line of questioning and thought end up being things of yes but how do you define life yeah like really fundamental questions what are the limits to that definition <laughs> you know is yeah. is this one of many it's you start getting into crazy stuff, and we'll get there. First, I wanted to give a little, as you mentioned, history mm -hmm. on it. You know, like I said, there's going to be lots of links. I'm going to put a link up to the 2015 strategy, the most recent one they went into, where they have the specifics of what they're planning on looking at uh, on the blog. So look for that, everyone. But that's we'll we'll leave that for now because it's it, this is this is like a business's you know annual plan for their upcoming fiscal year but it's for research so it's yeah, yeah there's yeah. a lot to it that's cool now as you mentioned this was a very early on thing we've been asking this question since before nasa existed we've been making movies about mm -hmm. things on other worlds <laughs> since before we had the ability to observe that there were other worlds you know this is a age old question nasa was established in 1958 very shortly after that the search for life began on a smaller scale. But it that question was asked, and they attempted to answer it. The article you were talking about mentioned the fact that there was probably a bit of luck because this coincided with some discoveries on life's early beginnings and potential origins here, yeah. which gave us kind of the clue of like, 
hmm, well, if we can see how life began here, could it have began other places? Mm-hmm. And the search went on. Wasn't a necessarily popular field at first. You know, there's definitely some people who were hesitant on it. We come to 1961 where a cool event happened. This this sounds like there needs to be a based on a true story movie made of this because I bet this <laughs> meeting was just fascinating. A man named Frank Drake. Oh, yeah. Set up a meeting for a number of astronomers because he was intent on trying to find evidence of extraterrestrial life. Mm-hmm. And he set up a meeting of astronomers, including Carl Sagan himself. Yeah. Basically saying to dis- to discuss the concept of looking for extraterrestrial life, specifically using radio telescopes to listen for alien transmissions. Mm-hmm. Now, this will go into more detail in it because we're not to that timeline on, but this would go on to form SETI, the yeah, search, the for, search extraterrestrial for extraterrestrial intelligence. intelligence. <laughs> yes, and so we're. This is a kind of one of the first big steps on there. There, there was kind of good movement there to push things forward. Uh, Great Minds is also where the famous Drake equation came from, which Frank Drake made to estimate the number of planets in the universe that would hold intelligent life that we would be able to hear signals from. Now, this is one of those hypothetical equations, not in that the equation may or may not exist, but that (laughs) the answers for it are all, or the input for it, are all mostly unknown. Yes, it's a whole lot of assumptions. Absolutely, but it's, we'll put, it's, it's, it's a thought experiment. It it's is really cool. interesting. The we'll put concept. the equation into the blog post because I can't remember all of it. But it's basically the concept of like you take the average rate of star formation, mm-hmm. multiply multiply it by the fraction of stars that develop planets, multiply that by the fraction of solar systems that have planets in the habitable zone, multiply that by the fraction of you know uh, uh, planets that then develop life develop intelligent life, last long enough to create radio transmission, and then stay around long enough to, or then the amount of time that they stay around transmitting for, you know, that civilization, Mm -hmm. however long it lasts, and that will give you the likeliness of us hearing something. Yeah, yeah. And all we know is the rate of star birth. Yes. (laughs) We only know one of those. (laughs) But we're starting to fill in pieces as we go on. Yeah. So it's, a lot of this is going to sound kind of sci-fi, because this is where a lot of sci-fi gets its inspiration. I mean, that's <laughs> well, and it because we're trying to answer it's it's a statistical issue. Yes, in that we are trying to answer questions about the nature of life, and our sample size is one. Yes, we have we know one planet that has life on it. We have one origin of life. That's all we got, and we're trying to figure out all this stuff about life elsewhere, mm-hmm. and we don't have we don't we don't have that information yet. Absolutely. And so as things move on, we get the Viking missions in 1976. These were rover missions to Mars specifically to look for life. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. at this point, things were to the point where we were sending missions. All right, go find Martians. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Uh... (laughs) Slightly Uh. different. Oh, yeah. If I could do this... a John Jones impression, I would, but <laughs> at least a recognizable one. This is a cool point in astrobiology because we're still having to ask questions that are way out there. What kind of life do they look for? Do we have to worry about them contaminating Mars with Earth microbes? Do we have to worry about them bringing back Martian microbes? Mm-hmm. You know, like, <laughs> these, these are all kind of big deals. Yeah, Orson Welles or, would agree. And there was high hopes 
they didn't find anything. And there's actually a big amount of disappointment. And they said that this actually deterred interest in Mars for a while because we were, there was kind of the, almost the expectation of, all right, we finally can go find that life. And then there was nothing. Yeah. And even, even scientists get disappointed. (laughs) Uh, Evidently, even Carl Sagan said he looked forward to maybe seeing, like he estimated that there might be floating creatures on Mars you know, things like that. I mean, so they were big time excited. The program still continued. SETI started in 1985, still going today, listening for alien transmissions. There are even new programs updating now of looking for flashes of light, artificial light from alien civilizations. So they're looking, you know, going down different avenues. You get uh, the ALH84001 meteorite or the (laughs) Allen Hill meteorite. Discovered in 1984, researched about 1996, and this was a piece of a chunk of Mars rock that was blown off by some impact, flew through space. They estimate it was in space for 16 million years. <laughs> Just a short trip. <laughs> and then landed here about 13,000 years ago. Initially, when they found it, they described evidence of microfossils. So You'll hear, yeah. I mentioned this because you will see this when you look up things about alien life or Martian life or astrobiology. Since then, it's not been necessarily disproven, but it has kind of been rejected because all of the evidence they showed could be answered with non-biological means. Yeah, so, yeah. Occam's razor says yes. that you did not find alien microbes. But this had renewed a lot of interest in looking at Mars and pushed astrobiology into kind of the modern age and right about that time is when the institute itself was shortly was established shortly after that this this at about the same time about 1995 is when we find our first exoplanet which is a planet orbiting a star other than ours yes in a different solar system Mm -hmm. this is 51 pegasi b yeah they all have such great names they have they have really interesting names uh it's 50 light years from us Gaseous giants, so nothing like us, but... Mm-hmm. And this is one of those things where, once again, we talked about other planets for years. You know, there's sci-fi galore of us visiting other worlds, of creatures coming from other worlds. Right, right. Other solar systems, other, other galaxies. Solar, yeah, all that sort of... This is the first time we confirmed it. Yes, there are more than our home planets. Yeah, and 1985... Or 1998, I got my years flipped, in a NAI... NASA Astrobiology Institute was established. And continuing today, we have Kepler in 2009. This is a telescope specifically for searching for exoplanets. Mm-hmm. And this is this is one of my favorite... I actually did a report on Kepler uh, back in school. This is one of my favorite NASA missions and projects. It is a telescope that we do not aim. It is already aimed. It is pointing at one area of the sky, mm-hmm. about... Tw- of the sky is what it is looking at. It is looking at a portion that includes the constellations or parts of the constellations uh, Lyra, Sigus, and Draco. Mm -hmm. One little area, and it is looking for signs of exoplanets. Now, the way it does this, because I'm sure many of you are going, but Will, how do you see a planet around another star when the stars are but pinpricks? Yes. You look for the light signature of the star to dip when something yep. passes in front of it, and you look for it to dip regularly, which means something is orbiting it. 
it's blocking just a, just a little bit of that light, and you and can you pick it up. See this downward blip in the light output. By doing that, and they, they identify candidates by saying, all right, we see this pattern, and then they will take a closer look to verify whether there is or isn't something there. To give you the numbers, because these are some of my favorite numbers in science, mm -hmm. candidates that they have identified is 4,496 last time I checked when I was making these notes. <laughs> Number of, of, of known or suspected exoplanets? Of potential exoplanets. So these are ones where they've seen promising light signatures. Confirmed mm -hmm. exoplanets, 2,341. <sighs> now this is out of the total confirmed via Hubble Telescope and others of 3,578. So this is two-thirds of the confirmed exoplanets is just this one stretch spot of the Milky Way galaxy. And oh, then man. confirmed exoplanets that are less than two... This is getting really specific just because these are the cool ones that we want to mm -hmm. find. We found plenty of those in the habitable zone, which for everyone who doesn't hasn't heard of that, or the Goldilocks zone, is the distance between or from a star that a planet can be where it has enough heat to keep liquid water without it freezing and it's not so close that it all evaporates. Yeah, not, not too hot, not too cold. Where it's at least Just liquid right. some of the time. And so, yep. Goldilocks. Exactly. This can be different for different stars. Bigger stars mm -hmm. are going to be farther away. Smaller stars are going to be closer. So you could have a planet that's habitable but has like a two-month year. You know, compared you know, of our yeah, months, yeah. it could be so you get weird stuff of confirmed exoplanets in the habitable zone that are only two less than two times the size of Earth, so pretty right. darn close to our size. They found thirty of those. Thirty, so there are thirty other potential Earths. Yes, out there <laughs> in in the Kepler zone. Mm hmm. In the Kepler zone, so only. that is a quarter of a percent mm -hmm. of of our big circle of space that we can mm -hmm. see from our planet. And so this is this is this is one of those fields where once it got going, it exploded. Kepler was yeah. vastly more successful than they ever expected. And this sort of success has been another big push for examining these things. The most recent and big one that everyone probably remembers is Curiosity yep. with the landing of the Mars Science Laboratory. Yeah, Curiosity might be my favorite mission. It's so cool. Yeah. Now, the other reason Curiosity is a big deal is this is one of the, you know, since the Viking missions, one of the first major expedition, especially expeditions to Mars mm -hmm. and to another planet with a specifically astrobiological mission. Yeah. So Curiosity is the newest rover that that has been awesome. sent to Mars. And it had, I think it had 10 different instruments on it. Oh, it's so, and it's, it's powered by radioactive material, so it can go forever. Oh, it's it's super cool. This is this is like a sci-fi robot. Yeah. And its main mission was to determine whether or not ancient Mars was habitable. Yep. To look for signs that Mars at at least some point could have had the ecosystem or the conditions that would have allowed for life to exist. Yeah, or at the very least life like we know it on Earth. Yes. Exactly. And that, it, what's interesting is that Curiosity is not equipped to detect life. Mm -mm. Or even to detect fossil remains yeah. of life. We just step back. The, the, the first, the geology question. Yeah. What was the environment like? 
We went whole hog with Viking and said, all right, go find life. And nothing <laughs> curiosity is going to slow down now. Exactly. So we've, we've taken a step back with life. We went, all right, find out if life's even an option there. Mm-hmm. And so we'll take it baby steps and work our way up. And there's plenty of, there's tons of more missions that could be mentioned here. There's the future 2020 Mars mission. That is, mm-hmm. it would be another rover similar to Curiosity, also in conjunction with the MSL, Mars Science Laboratory, that it would connect and work with. And so astrobiology is continuing to develop or continuing to advance, and things are awesome really quick, because I, I, we are a paleontology podcast, so I wanted to focus a little bit on how this affects and how Earth history applies to this, but I wanted yeah. to give you guys an Real overview. Real quick before you do. Oh, yeah. I said Orson Welles before when I was making a reference to War of the Worlds, mm-hmm. and that should have been H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells, yeah. I am embarrassed and, and apologetic to everybody. <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> I, meant, like... I meant H.G. Wells. <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien or J.R.R. <laughs> you guys all need different names if you're going to do similar stuff. The, the George R.R. Tolkien guy really wrote some cool books. Game of the Rings. Game of the Rings. So I wanted to really quick give you guys an overview of the most promising places we're looking right now. Yeah. Once again, crazy amount of information we could go into, but I wanted to give the quick, because now that we've talked a little bit about a lot of what we're doing, it'd be kind of nice to know, okay, yeah, but what are, what are our best guesses right now for where to look? The first and most obvious is Mars. That's where yep. you hear most of it. Yep. That has always been our first look for numerous reasons. One, it's easy to get to compared yep. to all the other planets. It's the yep. closest. It's right next door. It's also the most like us in our solar system. Mm-hmm. It's rocky, similar sized, similar distance. It is still within the habitable zone, even though it's on the very outer edge. Yeah. So it has very similar conditions. It just, at some point, if it had an atmosphere, lost it. Yeah, something changed. So it is now barren. But that and that—that's where we, we you bring in that paleontology connection. Yes. Is that we sent it up there? Like what Curiosity is doing up there is the same thing we do in fossil sites today. Is what was the environment like? How do we interpret mm-hmm. the ancient environment? Because and I used to say this to my friends. I'd, I'd get into conversations with friends, and they'd be like, "Oh, do you think we're going to find life on on other planets?" And I would say, if we find, I would, I would be willing to put down money mm-hmm. that the first evidence we find of life on another planet, if we do, will be fossil evidence. Yeah. Statistically speaking, right? Most life that has ever existed on anywhere in the world, anywhere in the universe that we know of, is extinct. Yes. There's a lot more to find fossilized than there is to find living potentially. Absolutely. It's it's just the t- statistics point that way. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the big things, and this will become a theme as we keep going, but for most of the places we're looking right now, the theme is the chase for water. The yes. search for water. Follow because the water. as far as we can see so far on Earth, water is one of the universal requirements for life. Mm-hmm. Now, we used to think there were more, but we'll get into why that's different now later on as we talk about the uh, more peculiar life forms on Earth, but so far as we can see, that is still a universal requirement that mm-hmm. cells need water to fill themselves with and to float their insides and to function within and to 
dissolve things and transmit materials, all that stuff. Yeah, water is a very unique molecule. It's very unique and very important to the way our life functions. On Mars, that's been one of the biggest things they look for, and they have found it. They have found signs of water. They found river channels, valley systems that seem to have been cut by water. They find mm -hmm. alluvial fans, which would be like tributaries that are made from you know, water spreading out and moving across a landscape. Yeah, technically those are distributaries. Yes. Fun fact. <laughs> tributary feeds into a That's major true. river. Yes. A distributary is a branch out of a major river. I learned that a, recently and now I'm... Which is a really fun name. <laughs> sharing. Yeah, no, I love it. Distributary. <laughs> They've found tons of evidence. Phoenix Lander, which was another mission to Mars, mm -hmm. found ice on the northern area of Mars. Yeah. And so we have found what frozen water, usually beneath the surface, but we have found it. The materials required for life, the basic minerals and, and periodic elements have been detected there. Mm -hmm. Multiple rovers and uh, probes have detected these. Curiosity has found a ton of stuff. It's currently in uh, Gale Crater, mm -hmm. which is... As far as they've been able to tell, perfectly, or was once, perfectly capable of supporting microbial life. Yep. So, I mean, the evidence is building. What happened to it is still a mystery. Whether it was ever there is still a mystery. Whether it's still there is still a mystery. The, there's some weird questions. The things that Curiosity has found suggests and supports the theory that Mars was once warmer and wetter than it is today, mm -hmm. but the scientists and climate modelers who study it cannot figure out how it would have maintained that or achieved that. Yeah. The math doesn't line up. So we're yeah. not sure how it would have ever held an atmosphere or stayed warmer. So, I mean, the evidence is building, but so are the questions and so are the issues. So, Oh yeah. Well, and it's, it's, and this is a big tangent. I don't want to go down this line too far, but it always blows me away thinking about studying Mars when I stop and think that every study that has ever been conducted, almost, has been specifically to ask questions about this one planet that we mm -hmm. live on. Yeah. All, just about all of geology and biology and chemistry, studying the atmosphere, the oceans, everything, all of that is studying Earth stuff. Yep. To think that we are now hopping onto another planet which has its own atmospheric dynamics, its own internal structure, its own history, its own geologic form. Mm -hmm. That, like, that is the kind of thought that overwhelms me. Yeah. And I have to stop thinking about it. Because it's, there's so much that we have left to learn about this place. Oh, absolutely. It's, it, going back to our video game analogies, it's like when you're a good way through a very long game and you decide to pick up at the same time another game <laughs> well, no it is it's different mechanics different mm -hmm. physics different like it, it 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 always strikes me as like i think of uh to to D, &D mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. where you have the different realms and yes. in this realm this is how the the very fabric of reality is mm -hmm. in this realm versus this realm is different and yeah these are two different worlds Play tectonics is different. Atmosphere yeah. stuff is different. Weather is different. And that's just, you know, and it, I, I hope we continue to learn. And I'm always excited to think about 
how much we're learning about Mars and the cool new stuff, but the thought of how much is left to learn to answer these fundamental questions is really astounding. It's really crazy. And that gets, if we ever do make the discovery of life, that adds a whole exponential layer of complexity to Mm -hmm. those new questions now. And like, we barely understand the, the details of life here, let alone one we've not, we aren't a part of. Yeah. There are a few other planets and moons in our solar Mm -hmm. system that are big proponents. The most famous second to Mars is Europa. Yes, the moon. Yeah, one of Of Jupiter's moons. Yeah. This is a frozen planet. It's got a frozen surface or frozen moon. Mm -hmm. The surface is frozen, very thick ice over it with, as far as our research shows, oceans underneath. Yeah, liquid oceans underneath. Liquid oceans. From what we can tell, it's a salty brine of an ocean down there, very similar to our seas, mm-hmm. or at least parallel to them. The water underneath is liquid, should be frozen, but they think that the gravitational pulls and flexings of the planet and other moons around them basically heats up the inside to keep it fluid, or could be what's doing that. Interesting. There's lots of questions. They've seen uh, plumes of water breaking through the surface, so are mm-hmm. definitely areas where things can get to and from. There's lots of details on where nutrients could be coming from and what nutrients could be created that life could be feeding off of. We haven't seen any specific evidences for those. There's just lots of hypotheses on what could be providing and some evidence for sources of these potential nutrients. Mm-hmm. And there are other icy planetoids as well. Uh, another one of Jupiter's moons... Uh, Ganymede mm-hmm. is also one of those frozen bodies. Two of Saturn's moons, Titan and Enceladus, are also icy bodies. They've seen similar plumes on Enceladus from mm-hmm. that they saw in Europa. Not going to go into detail for each one because we could get way off on that tangent. Yep. Cool thing to be mentioned about Europa that I thought was a neat thing that one sci- when one scientist was asked about it is why they were focusing on Europa over Mars. And they said, if we find life on Mars and it has DNA, Mm -hmm. that's super cool, but we are close enough to each other that we may have seeded one another, or it may come from a similar origin, or there might be a connection. If we find life on Europa and it has DNA, that is far enough apart that that is almost surely, or much more likely, Mm -hmm. separate origins, which now is is a... not more important or bigger, but that is a more significant statement about the existence of DNA when it comes to life. Interesting. So there, you have two different potential answers on Mars versus farther out in the solar system. Yeah. Now, if we found life on either one and it doesn't have DNA, that's a whole nother mm-hmm. big observation to make. <laughs> but that's one of the reasons that they, some people are focusing on Europa is that it is it's far enough away to be a separate case study, they feel, from yeah, yeah, yeah. the Mars-Earth potential duo. Lots of cool stuff with that. Once again, we could go on and on about the more recent and findings for astrobiology. There's tons of cool stuff. There's tons of recent and still yet to be confirmed findings. Mm-hmm. But we are a paleo podcast. Yes. <laughs> so, one of the things astrobiology deals with and focuses on, as we mentioned, is the origin of life, not just on other planets, but here. 
Yeah, in general. Where does life come from? Exactly. Because to understand how life would form on another planet, we must first understand how it formed here. Mm-hmm. To give us a frame of reference. To give to go through the the background of that as far as for what we know of li- origin of life on Earth. We'll go through the quick timeline and some of the uh hypotheses as to how some of these steps happened. So the the most recent consensus is that life most likely formed 3.9 billion years ago as far as when yeah ish the clock show <laughs> it's it's this could adjust in a whole bunch of different ways yeah uh, we, we've had we have evidence of life back to 3.5 yes and then there's been and as, as we've discussed before there's been possible signs mm-hmm. of life earlier than that and so that the general hypotheses as to when life showed up typically bounce around four billion. And so the the idea being that if we're finding life at three point five, mm-hmm. it has to have some run up time. So we don't have evidence for four billion years yet, but there are a couple of interesting cases. Uh, the earliest claimed life forms, not mm-hmm. confirmed or or accepted but are microbes on rocks that appear to have once been hydrothermal vents which mm-hmm. we'll talk about a little bit later that seem to be 4.4 billion years old wow now That's like i said controversial <laughs> these are not these are claimed these are not uh confirmed nor uh they're not confirmed they're not all agreed upon yeah yeah the, the general scientific consensus is not behind this one mm-hmm Earliest confirmed life is about 3.5, as you said, stromatolites, yeah. which we've talked about before, which are the remnants of cyanobacteria. So somewhere in between those is when life showed up. And that's exactly what we're looking at, the earliest evidences for life. So not confirmed fossil or remnants are telltale signs that life may have been there. Mm-hmm. It goes back to... 3.8 billion years. These are areas yes. near Greenland where they see high levels of lighter isotopes of carbon. Yep. Which this is this is where it starts sounding like a Sherlock Holmes thing of <laughs> yes, but this thread tells us who the killer is. How on earth do isotopes a slightly <laughs> higher density tell us life was there? And it's because organisms tend to pick up the lighter isotopes of carbon because they are less they take less energy to use than the heavier ones so finding a concentration yep. and this is why they're controversial it, exactly so we're we're it, getting it's, into it's things hard where hard to confirm is this a life side effect or is this something else an abiotic a a natural side effect mm-hmm. that caused that so we're this is where we're starting to have to look it's getting much more like your your mystery novels of yeah hmm the killer was left-handed you know who else was left. <laughs> you know, we're getting into these things where it's not hard evidence because it's going so far back that the the Earth does not hold a lot of the things, the, the history from then. A lot of mm-hmm. that has been erased by the processes of the planet. So we look at the early conditions of Earth. Mm-hmm. The geological record really does not go back much farther than 3.8 billion years. Yeah. Things before that were basically erased by the processes of Earth being born mm-hmm. and forming. The time before that would have been an extremely hostile time area for life if it was around. 
but it would have been unlikely because it's a very harsh time. Evidence shows that water vapor would have first appeared 4.4 billion years ago. So yeah, you're not even really having, as far as we understand life, the main ingredient for life until that time. Yeah, yeah. And then we have an interesting time called the light, late bombardment, or late heavy bombardment, mm-hmm. which is between 3.8 and 4.1 billion years ago. This was a this is thought to be the time when a lot of craters on the moon formed. Yeah. And if the moon was getting hit, it's very likely we and surrounding planets were getting hit. Yeah, by all sorts of debris from the early formation of the solar system. Solar system debris, meteorites, and asteroids impacting on us. If life had appeared before this time, it's likely that it would have been sterilized during this. It's one of the we once again we don't know that life did exist before this or that it did not. Mm-hmm. But it's not likely that anything that evolved before that would have made it through this because it was a very rough time. After that, we get into the early oceans. One of the things that's interesting about this is, judging by when life may have been forming, modern cells might give us a clue for what those oceans were like, which is really cool. I love this. Looking at the cell cytoplasm, the goo inside our cells and most mm-hmm. of life's cells, what it contains is probably what those oceans contained. Because you have to get it from somewhere. Yeah, yeah. We have much higher potassium, phosphate, and transition metals in our cells than modern oceans and bodies of waters have. So those may have been much more common in early oceans. Interesting. This is the interesting thing about trying to interpret stuff that far back, is we're going on scant evidence from back then, studies of other plant formation of other bodies in the solar system, and then whatever other clues we can we can try to find. It gets very interesting. The The way I always think about it is, you know, we've always talked about, like, when you look farther away, things get blurrier and blurrier. One of the ways I think about it is if, if you've ever tried to, like, poke something with a pole, you know, if you use a pencil, you can be really accurate. You know, people do calligraphy <laughs> and stuff. But if you, like, try to use a pool cue to turn a light switch off. Yeah. Like, next time you guys get a chance, try that or just a broomstick. <laughs> It is a great party game because it's really hard to be, yeah. to aim. The longer and longer it gets, the less control you get, and the more erratic your movements become. The farther and the farther back we get, the more our aim goes off of mm-hmm. what we're looking at. There's also an interesting thing about temperature for back then that might be... We know that things were much hard, hotter back then as things were cooling down and the planet was calming down. But the, because of that... That kind of gives us a range for when life would have most likely even been able to have developed, depending Mm -hmm. on where it developed. If life started at deep sea hydrothermal vents, like some think it might have, it could have developed as early as 4 billion years or just before that. But if it was developing on the surface, it would have had to be after that, all the way up to 3.5 billion years, 4 to 3.5, because of the surface condition. Mm -hmm. So it's things like that give us a range of to when it might have been happening. Interesting. And it's fun to follow the news on these things because these are all like there's lots and lots of discussion that goes around what what were the conditions pushing those time frames back yeah. and forth. Now one of the most interesting parts of the origin of life is something called abiogenesis. Mhm. Which is and this is one of those things that is we you, when we talk about the origin of life, you know has to be a thing. <laughs> this is the natural process by which life arises from non-living matter. Yes. We have life. We 
at one point did not have life, this has to have happened. And it had to happen somewhere. Even if it mm-hmm. wasn't here, it had to happen somewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this is a question that is really kind of one of those, you know, uh, uh, almost holy grails of the life question. How did you have stuff that is non-living? Elements on the periodic table. Mm-hmm. And then eventually those organize themselves in a way in a natural system mm-hmm. that leads to life. Yeah. Now we have ideas on how that would happen. We don't know which of the ideas line up, but we do have some general concepts. There are the most recent model is kind of a three-step process, general concepts. We could get into much more detailed stuff as we talk about stuff, but we're not going to do that here. Yeah. The three steps are origin of biological monomers. These are things like fatty acids, amino acids, nucleotides, Mm -hmm. very simple organic materials. These have been shown to have been able to be created in the early environments of Earth as long as the right elements were there. Yeah, yeah. We found things like amino acids have been mm-hmm. found in space. Exactly. So like these, these can things form, form naturally. Randomly and on their own. The next step would be the origin of biological polymers, which are when these monomers are organized into larger molecules mm-hmm. or macromolecule that are composed of many repeated subunits. So lots of amino acids getting together and creating some kind of polymer. Yeah, proteins, things Mm -hmm. like that. And after this, you get the evolution of molecules to cells, basically where these polymers eventually form themselves. And the big one is spontaneously forming a cell membrane. Mm -hmm. And there have been shown proteins and other polymers and other things like that, that will, when you mix them into water, will auto-form these capsules or auto-form these rings or they yeah, will, yeah. it's like when you put magnets together, they're all uh, the right shape, they will form up into patterns just by pulling on each other the right way. Yeah, all the pieces of a cell, you know, mo- most of the fundamental pieces of a cell are naturally forming things. Yes. It's this question of what were the conditions that, that allowed them to come together as a capsule of reactions. And it's it's interesting stuff because you, you start to see um, neat things in there. You know, the, the idea is that these things formed and eventually that capsule or cell membrane formed and captured something in it mm-hmm. that suddenly allowed it to start forming as a unit yeah. in some way. What it was and how that was is a question that we probably won't have answered for quite some time. Yeah, it's one of those interesting questions where we have a bunch of ideas that are perfectly plausible Mm -hmm. as to how this can happen. We just don't know which of those ideas is the way that it happened. Absolutely. And we've, some of them we've even recreated in labs and Mm -hmm. seen, you know, so, I mean, we've seen that's the proof of concept for many of these ideas, but you know, we don't have the evidence for which is most likely or actually happened. And this also means that if these are all, potentially valid, they all could be the likely or possible scenario somewhere else. This is true. You have Earth's conditions are different than others. One of the things I found most interesting when going through all of this was a statement that the materials that make up Earth's life are very likely random. In the fact that Hmm. what composes our cells had to be what was on Earth. 
true. And that another planet that went through abiogenesis and created its own life by natural processes would have to build it with the building blocks it had. Interesting. I wonder how much variation there would actually be. And that's one of the big questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or if it's it has to be the same elements and molecules or if different you know, structure, you know, different crustal structure or different atmospheric chemical compositions can give you something different. Which has actually been one of the big questions about this sort of line of study is studying our life is really, really cool and all, but you have to pause and step back to look at it from the point of view that there is the potential for this to give us tunnel vision. If we yeah. understand our life to such a good degree, we may overlook the fact that another form of life may not follow this pattern yeah. and that could cause us to overlook extraterrestrial life because we didn't recognize it as life yes but at the same time here's your devil's advocate mm -hmm. if we don't know what to look for yep how do we find it and so it's we have <laughs> to do this but we have to remember that this is but as you said one option in the universe as far yeah, as yeah. we know sample size is one the amount of options could be one two a million. Mm -hmm. There's, there's no, no. Every planet may have its own unique answer to forming life. We may find that life is not hard to form, and yeah. really, if you take enough time, almost anything, we may find that there's really one answer to life, or there's just a few answers to life. Mm -hmm. Those factors we have no clue right now, and that's the weird and exciting part. It gives us the the difficulty of trying to figure out what options to look for most likely. Yeah. Based on what we know, what can we say? Right? Where yeah. where can we go from here with our limited knowledge? Absolutely. Now, one of the last things on the origin of life is a concept called panspermia, which you'll hear about if you look up this topic on your own. And it's the idea mm -hmm. that life was transmitted from another planet. The original idea was from another planet via spores. Yeah. Either transported naked in space, or more modern idea of on or in meteorites and comets. Yeah, like that Martian meteorite that yeah, blasted exactly. off one planet and landed on another. This is the beginning of the movie Evolution. Just that's yep. panspermia. Now, this is a highly criticized idea because mm -hmm. evidence so far does not show that most life would survive long periods in the vacuum of space. Yeah. They've shown that some can better survive when protected by artificial meteorites of either clay or other materials, and some of them even survived a matter of years. Mm -hmm. The alternative to this is that instead of life being able being introduced directly to another planet, but that the materials for building life were introduced. Right. That a planet that may have had life blew up or whatever and launched a piece of itself into space, and on that rock it doesn't have anything living, but it has the parts, the smushed parts, or <laughs> yeah, the, it's got the chemical parts, mm -hmm. composition needed to seed planets to eventually begin abiogenesis. So there's a lot of things. We do think that that's probably a very common occurrence that complex materials are transmitted through space by chunks of rock blown off of planets. Yeah. By impacts by other chunks of rock, and that. You're getting this, just like stars blowing up, seed the universe with more complex elements as they age, that planets will also seed the universe with their building blocks as they 
throw chunks of themselves off or and these these are interesting concepts because they are you know it's one of those like this is super fun to think about mm-hmm. almost entirely hypothetical it's it's stuffed the list of considerations mm-hmm. keep these things in mind when thinking about these questions this is one of the weird times in a biological field since it has biology in the name where mm-hmm. it's most comparable to things like quantum mechanics or or things like where these are concepts that on paper work and make sense we have yet to determine whether that's actually a thing yeah like <laughs> the math works out whether that's what's happening or happened or can happen actually we don't know yet yeah and it's it's a really weird place to be especially in a biological field indeed it is on the note of early life and what we might look for on other planets, one of the big kind of breaks in the story was back when extremophiles were first discovered or the big discoveries of extremophiles. Mm -hmm. Now, these are organisms. You'll often hear them called extremophile bacteria, but they're not always bacteria. Yeah. These are organisms that live in extreme conditions. They're defined specifically as any organism living in a physically or geochemically extreme condition that would be detrimental to most other life on Earth. Interesting. So hot hydrothermal vents and, yep. and those those hot pools in Yellowstone that yep. have the rings of color. Exactly. Hot places, really cold places. We found microbes under ice. Mm-hmm. You know, under miles of ice in Antarctica. We drill down, and there's stuff living down there. Yep. There's things that can live off in acidic systems and high pressure systems at you know at the bottom of Mariana Trench and places like that. Yeah, those high high salt concentrations yes, like we talked which about. We mentioned earlier. Uh, caves. One of the unique things about these, this is the really reason that extremophiles are a big deal, isn't that they're living in tough places, which is important because initially we thought that, well, life on another planet would probably need conditions very similar to our own. This shows that, nah, life is tough. Yeah. It will find a home just about anywhere if it gets the chance. So we could look in some extreme places but for a lot of these, specifically the hydrothermal vents in the caves, they revealed another thing which redefined what we thought were the requirements or the conditions needed for life. Mm-hmm. We still know or believe that water is a universal requirement for Earth-like life. We have yet yeah. to find life on Earth that does not need water. But we also thought that sun was a part of that, or at least that a sunlight-based <laughs> food chain was one of those basis of life that every food chain we looked at, when you drew the line back, you eventually reached to something that photosynthesized from the sun and provided food for other things. Mm-hmm. The caves and hydrothermal vents break this. Yeah. Which is fascinating. So hydrothermal vents are these deep sea chimneys of rock that have built up around these geochemical geysers bubbling up from the Earth's crust, Mm-hmm. High, high temperature, lots of really caustic minerals and chemicals being thrown out, and would seem like a uninhabitable place. But by m- microbes have grown on the sides of these chimneys, feeding off of the chemicals coming out of those vents. Yeah, no sun needed. No sun needed. These are chemosynthetic or chemotrophic bacteria and microbes. So they are using chemicals instead of sunlight, and they feed a whole food web. There are mm-hmm. smaller animals that feed off of them, tube worms that filter out the smaller animals, 
bigger animals like crabs that feed off the tube worms, eels that feed off the crabs. I mean, yeah, the whole thing. And this is really interesting because not only is this separate from the sun, but those vents are impermanent. They eventually shut down. Mm-hmm. When something in the earth moves or shifts, it'll shut down that vent by random happenstance, and that community will just wipe out. So these communities are comparatively short-lived to others, which is also very interesting for how they are seeded, you know, or how do they develop. Mm-hmm. And that's another really important thing about looking for origins of life and finding life in other places. Yeah, how does it get from place to place? Yeah. And where, you know, what what does it really need to survive? Mm-hmm. If Are there hydrothermal vents under those Europa frozen oceans? Yeah, we could have them down there. The caves have a very similar chemosynthetic microbes. Uh, you, If any of you remember the microbe mats, the microbial mats that we talked about in our Cambrian explosion mm-hmm. episode, the, this used to be, the ocean was covered with just this layer of microbial growth that was eventually eaten mm-hmm. on the, the sea, the shallow sea floors. Yeah. This was similar to that, but it's on cave walls and it's leaching off and eating the chemicals in the rock of the cave <laughs> and that yeah. are given off by the, the geology and you know, the uh, things that might be released in the cave. They form these microbial mats that come down in these like goopy drips that never Ooh. actually drip. Like in um, the like in the Super Mario Brothers movie, yeah, <laughs> the mushroom yeah. stuff. <laughs> they call them lovingly snoticles. <laughs> of course they do. So they are very much like the mushroom things from yes, the are. Super Mario Brothers movie. <laughs> They're either a snotical or, or a uh, snotite. A a snot lagtite. Yep, and so it's a snotite, a stagtite, and a <laughs> <laughs> and these are really great examples of life on the edge of yeah this is past what majority of life on earth can sustain but it is sustaining and some of it without the sun which gives us a whole new realm of places that we can look yeah on other planets one of the cool things that's been kind of discovered more recently is something called bioverns or biovermiculations hmm. which are these little pathways on the rocks they're famous for being on the rocks of caves where many of these microbes grow, they are they look like worm paths, but they're these like branching patterns of growth that are very common in places where resources are limited and they aren't just seen with bacteria and microbes, but they're showing in plants in arid regions create these on the rocks. Interesting. The soil crusts have bacteria and moss and lichens that create these in deserts. And this could be a new clue to find life like this on other planets. If we look for these bioverns, they may show evidence for life there that is similar to our extremophiles. Interesting. They give us a sense of what to look for in terms of life. Not only in other planets, but extremophiles are studied quite a lot when looking at questions about early Earth life. Exactly. You know, back when hyperacidic, hyper temperature conditions. And so this episode's already starting to run long, so I want to briefly mention one of the big questions that really, as we mentioned at the beginning, is kind of the final one you have to reach when talking about these subjects, but what is life? Yes. If you're searching for life, and life can come in many, many forms, how do you know it when you see it? 
how do you define life? Now, typically, life is things that adhere to Darwinian evolution mm-hmm. and replicate and grow or or process. You know, yeah, metabolize, metabolize, replicate, evolve. Those are big ones. There's mm-hmm. other argued features, and part of the reason this is argued is we see these feature in certain other things. Macromolecules can adhere to evolution. They they will change over time as they interact and, and process. They don't have the other features, but they do seem to evolve. So you have part of the feature there. There are three big ones that really throw a wrench into this whole life thing that we find <laughs> here on Earth. <laughs> like what that that line between tiger and rock. Yes. That seems so clear when it's a tiger mm-hmm. and a rock. <laughs> These are the guys that are right on the line and really, really make things weird. So the three big ones are self-replicating RNA, mm-hmm. viruses, and prions. Yes. <laughs> viruses are probably the most famous for this example because they literally are almost half and half. Yeah. Examples of life and examples of not life. Yeah. Viruses have... Uh, genetic material. Yep. They possess genes, so mm-hmm. they do have that ability to transmit data from generation to generation. They evolve by natural selection. Yep. Exactly like all other life forms do. They they will mutate. They will evolve. They will. They have some other forms where they can steal genes from other things, but so do bacteria. Mm-hmm. They also reproduce by creating copies of themselves. Yeah. Just like other organisms. The issues run into the fact that they do not have a cellular structure. Nope. They're much more, not mineral in their design, but they are not cellular in their design. That's why whenever you see them drawn, they look like robots. Yeah, they're all crystalline looking. Mm-hmm. They don't have their own metabolism, so they do not metabolize. They are, they don't need food. <laughs> Yeah, they don't fuel themselves. Mm-mm. And they require a host to reproduce. Now, a lot of you might be thinking, well, yeah, but so do parasites. But a parasite's still reproducing by itself. It's just living in something else. That we're its food. Yes, parasites are life that lives off of other life, whereas yeah. a virus is a something <laughs> that, persi- that parasitizes life. It invades the cell and tricks the cell into making more viruses. Yes. So it is actually not making more of itself. It is causing the cell to make more of itself. Yep. (laughs) Which is where you get into weird things. Now, there are some bacterial species that do similar things to this, so that the line gets blurred even further. Yeah. The One of the ones that's probably most uh, famous that you'll hear about a lot of time is the self-replicating RNA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, RNA is very famous. It's uh, part of our cells still, and it's a big part in transmitting data and making proteins and things like that in our cells. Mm-hmm. But there are certain RNAs that can self-replicate without the need of a cell. Yeah, and just some of them out on their can, own. Yeah, and some of them can even catalyze, which is it's processing chemical reactions by themselves. Now, most of these have been artificially created in labs. So these are not things that we necessarily know are roaming around by themselves, but we've seen that they can exist, mm-hmm. which has led to the hypothesis of something called RNA world. 
yeah, that RNA evolved before DNA-based life as we know it. And that's how we got it, is that it Mm -hmm. was around, it was replicating and doing its stuff, and then our form of life came along, and much like the the, uh, mitochondria is thought to have been a previous cell co-opted into ours, this was co-opted into cells, and now that's why we have it. Once again, hypothetical, Mm -hmm. but this is a thing that Sure acts like it's doing stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's it's got it's doing things like life while not mm-hmm. quite being like what you would be comfortable calling living. Yeah. The one that's weirdest for me are prions. Oh, Just yeah. cuz this this sounds like a sci-fi thing. Prions are proteins. Mhm. That have the ability to fold themselves in specific ways or multitude of ways, at least one of which we know acts like a viral infection. Yeah. So when this protein take is folded origami style into a certain form, if it enters a healthy organism, when it enters the cell, it will somehow induce the proteins in that cell that are normal and properly folded to convert to its misfolded form and become a prion themselves. And then those touch other proteins and fold mm-hmm. them into prions and so on and so on. If the phrase resistance is futile, futile comes to mind. <laughs> it's because this is how the Borg work. <laughs> like, this is a protein, a thing that our cell makes by the bazillions mm-hmm. that is somehow corrupting and converting other proteins to a, function, a malfunctioning form. Yeah, it's a glitch that spreads through the system. Exactly. And so these are things that are really weird because protein's obviously not alive, but that one's doing stuff. Yeah, it's replicating and spreading. So if <laughs> that's not alive, then, you know, and it if causes you find a, a sentient rock someday. <laughs> yeah. Right? It Mad cow mm-hmm. is a prion disease. Like, this is, it's a pathogen. It's a weird thing that is, you know, how do you yeah. how do you kill something that may not be alive? Yeah. As I said, this subject could be expanded massively, massively. We could discuss this kind of thing as to speculative things on what life on other planets might be like. There's tons of ideas there that can be for another episode. We've already, I, I knew this episode was going to be hard for me to keep under time because <laughs> it's a fascinating one for me, but. Yeah. Well, the. That spectrum of, you know, what is life and the fact mm-hmm. that there are things that seem like they're kind of life and they're not really life is exactly what you would expect to see. You know, we talk about that as though it's this, but, you know, you'll see it like, oh, we still we don't even know how to define life. Of course, we don't know how to define life. It's the same way that we, you know, we keep talking about this on the podcast, how, you know, what was the first bird? Yeah. What was the first snake? Well, we don't know because nature doesn't do that. Yeah. There well, was a transition from lizards to snakes, and there was a transition yeah. from other dinosaurs into the first birds. Where we draw the line is up to us. And so mm-hmm. when you go back to the earliest evolution of snakes, you see a bunch of snake-like things. Yeah. That may or may not, some of them may, some of them might be true snakes, and some of them aren't quite snakes. When we're going back to the origins of life, life didn't just appear yep. one day. There was a process. Mm-hmm. And so finding viruses and, and independent RNA and even prions are really, they're 
the clues as mm-hmm. to what might the earliest forms of life before it was definitely life yeah actually have been it's exactly what you would expect to see in a system where there was a spectrum there was a process that took what we call non-living into what we call living and where we draw that line is up to us yeah it's the as inanimate objects begin to animate yes (laughs) and eventually become recognizable there's a whole lot of conversation that we could have here about what might alien life look like and and what could it be and Mm -hmm. portrayal of of alien life in popular media is a fascinating subject of like how do we depict aliens in the movies you know all those questions are things that if you guys want to hear us talk about those let us know we've touched on a big old topic this is not once again i don't want to say the weirdest or the biggest or the but this is a topic that is huge, and there are so many questions we barely begin to answer. Yeah. But for now, we will close it up. Indeed. Before we do, one more thing that I wanted to mention, as an extra special thanks to our requester this Mm -hmm. time, Mellow Dinosaur, I noticed, not long after we got this request on Podbean, that a person also going by the, the name Mellow Dinosaur made a post on Reddit asking for astrobiology podcasts. Mm-hmm. And presumably that is the same person who also asked us to do an astrobiology episode. And I did not respond to that post, but I saw it and it stuck in my mind. And so if you are listening, dinosaur friend, we found a few. Yes, we did. In our search. Uh, SETI has a podcast called mm-hmm. Big, Big Picture Science. The Blue Marble Space Institute has a podcast called Blue Psycon, where they talk about these sorts of topics. And there is a podcast called The Ask an Astrobiologist Show. Yep. That is put on through NASA. Yeah. Check those out. Also, I'd like, this seems like a great opportunity to give a shout out to Astronomy Cast. Mm -hmm. We touched on astronomy questions and topics in this episode, which we will not be going into deeper in future episodes because they are out of our realm. I have a minor in that. I have a master's in paleo, so that's what we're focusing on. (laughs) So we will probably not be going too much more into astro topics in the future. Well, we we hit on them here and there. But if you're really interested in diving into astronomy subjects, including things like this, check out Astronomy Guest. They Mm -hmm. have been going for a long, long time. They were one of the inspirations for this podcast, in fact. Yeah. So definitely check them out. They are a very good show. Absolutely. And as usual, everyone, thanks for listening. If you would like to ask us questions, give us suggestions, comment on what we discussed here, continue the discussion, Mm -hmm. as we would love to do, you can contact us through email, commonascentpodcast at gmail.com. Facebook, Twitter, Podbean, our uh, WordPress blog. Yep. If you'd like to leave us a review on iTunes, we are always extremely happy to see those. If you would like to let us know what you're thinking about, if you have ideas for what we could do in this show, it's a new year with new possibilities. Yes, it is. Let us know what's on your mind, what you like, what you dislike, what you want to see, what you like to see more of or again. We're here and we're listening, everyone. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. And we will see you next time. 
for more discussions about more cool stuff. The truth is out there, everyone. <laughs> and we already know a lot of it, and we're going to tell you about that part. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. For more from us, you can follow us on the Common Descent Podcast Twitter account, Facebook page, or on our WordPress blog, where we post additional cool stuff for each episode. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome. You can find this and other video game remix music at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope to see you next time. Thank you.